0: particularly in the last, say, 30 years, where we started to get um, information on gene sequences and protein sequences. So uh, in in that time period, beginning in the 1980s, say, or 19, late 1970s, it became possible to look at the um, complexity of molecules that function inside cells, genes that encode proteins, and to start to ask, um, whether these uh, informational molecules um, are tolerant of changes to their sequence, and if they are, how tolerant, and if they aren't very tolerant, how much information is con- is contained in one of these things. Uh, it's it's taken many years and many people looking at these things to try to put numbers on that, but those numbers have come out in, in recent years. I've put a number on the uh, the fraction of possible protein sequences that can fold and function the way they have to inside cells, and it it turns out to be an extraordinarily small fraction, one in a hundred trillion 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 trillion, which is not an easy target to hit. Those numbers were not, could not have been, although I think if you go all the way back, when people look at living things, they would say those, that looks like it's been engineered, that looks like it's been made, um, it's only relatively recently that we could put numbers on probabilities, so that that has changed the argument, I think.
1: <clears throat> might be good just to piggyback on Doug's answer first, because the, the, the trend line in modern science, first in cosmology in the early 20th century, then in physics in the 1960s and 70s, and then in biology from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s right up to the present, I think has been one in which more and more evidence is coming to life, that, to light that points to uh, a mind first rather than a matter first view of reality. Uh, in cosmology, you have the discovery that the universe has a definite beginning. In physics, the discovery that from the beginning, the physical laws and constants of physics have been finely tuned to allow for the possibility of life. And then in biology, and the area that uh, Doug has done so much research, you have the discovery of a molecule that contains digital code, which is necessary for the production of all these uh, proteins and protein machines. So we have nano machinery, we have information, information processing technology, inside cells, all on a miniaturized scale. It's an exquisite level of uh, engineering design on display, and I think it really has put the issue of Um, intelligent design as opposed to just the Darwinian idea of a parent or the uh, design or the illusion of design back on the table so the science I think has been trending away from the strict materialist view of the 19th century to um, uh, a view that that I think really needs to be open to the idea of agency or intelligence um, as being behind what we're seeing in the physical world.
0: Just to say that um, When you look at living things in particular superficially, you may not perceive just how sophisticated they are. And I think the natural world is one in which the deeper you look at cells, the more you find, as Steve indicated, levels of sophisticated coding and engineering that someone can spend their entire life solving. So the 2004 JMB paper that I had published put a number on the rarity of functional protein sequences and that number was that scary number. Um, There hasn't been, uh, so far as I'm aware, there hasn't been in the literature a response that said, no, that's not correct. And it would be hard to do because there was other literature that was pointing that to that scary sort of number uh, anyway. So I really confirmed something more rigorously that was already there. There are people though, um, on blogs will say it's not that hard you can get a functional protein they're one in 30 or something like that uh, you won't get serious people who work in the field that, that say that because it's, it's a silly thing to say and I can't respond to all the, the blog people on the A to B transitions interestingly we have combed the literature I should say before Ann and I started working on the A to B we were very open to the possibility that it would actually work and in fact, we thought if we can get this to work, it'd be a really cool paper because we show how long it would take in, in the wild, but we did it in the, in the lab. We found that it wouldn't work. We couldn't get it to work. And we found that the change is so complicated that it would never happen in the wild. And nor could we find any convincing case in the literature of an A to B that would work other than an A that already does B to a small extent, and that we didn't wanna look at that case. So those those cases do work. So we have uh, an absence of any literature that confirms something that's thought to be a universal explanation for how you get protein diversity, which is a severe problem. We anticipated uh, a complaint, and we uh, thought we staved it off in the paper that describes this. The complaint that we anticipated was someone will say when we show this A cannot evolve this the function of this B in even billions of years, someone will say, no one said that that was the source of the B that you're looking at. The B came from some other prior source. And so in our discussion, we said, or even in the introduction, we said, we're not looking at historical transitions here. We're asking the more general question, can enzymes acquire new functions under selective pressure to acquire new functions and if they can't or if, if in an ideal case a very favorable case we can show that it can't happen then we've undercut the whole uh that whole explanatory framework and that's what we think we have what have they said in response they have said um that a you picked a wrong the wrong system that a did not evolve into the into that b And furthermore, by looking at modern enzymes, you're looking at things that are locked in. They're so perfected by natural selection that they can't evolve anymore. So, and we we thought that's a remarkable uh, change of tactic because it's effectively saying evolution does not work. They're conceding that in the present tense, evolution does not work, but claiming that it did work on some special things that nobody can find. And if we tried to find them and they didn't work, they'd say you didn't find the right thing. So it becomes, it really, isolates the theory from any sort of testing at all, which which we think shows that it's become a desperate theory.
2: Great to be back uh, here at Denton Bible. I was here a few years ago, so I expect most everybody remembers what I said uh, that, that then, so we'll just jump ahead. Uh, and the talk here is going to be called Darwin Devolves. Let's see, yes, Darwin Devolves, which is based on pretty, on pretty new research that has only developed in the past 10 to 20 years. But before I get into that, I'm, I am going to rapidly summarize the gist of my earlier writings, in uh, particularly Darwin's Black Box in 1996. Back in 1996, uh, there was enough research and information available at the molecular level of life, and I'm a biochemist, so that's where I focus my attention to make some comments about Darwin's uh, theory of evolution. And much of the book focused on a problem that Darwin himself recognized and wrote about in The Origin of Species. In The Origin of Species, right after a section describing the very, very complicated organ, the eye, the vertebrate eye, Darwin wrote that if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, adding, but I can find out no such case. Well, uh, the reason that he insisted that evolution had to be gradual was that he knew that if life improved rapidly in large leaps, then it would look a lot like something other than a random process were involved. It would look suspiciously like things were directed. And so Darwin always insisted that evolution had to be gradual. And in the book, I said, well, what sort of a system would give Darwin's mechanism of random changes plus natural selection trouble? And um, I... uh, Uh, introduced the concept called irreducible complexity and that's a fancy phrase but it just means that you have a system or an organ or something that has a number of parts and all of the parts are needed for the system to function. It can't be done with just one part and then built up to many more. And as a uh, as an example of irreducible complexity from our everyday world, uh, I showed a drawing of a mouse trap. And an ordinary mouse trap has a number of uh, parts. It's got a wooden platform to which everything's attached. It's got this specially shaped spring. It's got a holding bar, which is what uh, I'm sorry. It's got the hammer, which actually squashes the mouse the holding bar and a couple other things. It's also got a number of things that are not noticed so easily. There's a staple here and a staple there and a staple here. And if those staples weren't there or weren't placed in the right positions, the whole trap would, uh, would fail. And um, doubtless, uh, if you took away any of the larger parts too, it's not like the trap would work half as well as it used to, it wouldn't work at all, it would be broken. So the question is, how could you make something like a mousetrap by something analogous to a Darwinian mechanism? And uh, so uh, I hopefully answered Darwin's challenge that these kinds of things can't be put together by numerous successive slight modifications. And I should add random changes, because sometimes if a mind guides something, it can do things that unaided nature would not. And uh, the, the uh, major point of the book is that now that science in the 1990s had gotten down and drilled into the molecular level of life, we found irreducibly complex machinery all over the place, all over the place. And it's not surprising because if a simple mouse trap is irreducibly complex and would give fits to Darwin's theory, you know, more complex machinery would too. And the machinery in the cell science has discovered is really, really complex. Darwin didn't know about it because he was in the uh, middle of the 19th century when molecules were only theoretical entities and nobody actually knew much about the cell. But modern science has shown that molecular machinery is also irreducibly complex. And this has uh, been called the poster child of intelligent design, it's the bacterial flagellum which is quite literally an outboard motor that uh, uh, bacteria can use to swim and this is this long filamentous piece acts as the prelo- propeller, it's spun around and around and around and it pushes against the water which pushes the bacterium forward. There's this hook region which acts as the universal joint uh, to connect, to allow the, the uh, plane of the drive shaft, the rotation there to uh, translate into rotation in the plane of the propeller. Uh, the drive shaft is attached to a motor, and the motor is attached to a stator. There's bushing material to allow this to uh, poke up through the cell membrane. And it's also it's important to keep in mind that this, which looks pretty complex, this is a little cartoon drawing. You know, the bacterial flagellum isn't made of smooth geometric shapes. Each of these is composed of very complicated proteins which themselves have special shapes and special requirements. So, even at this level, uh, nonetheless, it presents big problems for uh, Darwin's theory. And I said in the book that rather than evolve by a Darwinian mechanism of random mutation and natural selection, uh, I think that this was designed, purposely designed by an intelligent agent. And uh, some of my critics then said, and I guess I should give that caveat, I, I do have some critics. Uh, <laughs> some of them said, well, that, that, that Behe fellow, he's, he's a known Christian. And he has been seen entering and leaving churches. <laughs> So therefore this idea of intelligent design that's a religious idea that's not science. And they said that I'm uh, letting my faith interfere with my science and uh, while I appreciate their criticism uh, but I disagree with them. I think the conclusion of design is a completely empirical one. That is that It's based on physical, observable evidence, plus an understanding of how we come to a conclusion of design, all the time. And to see how we do that, let's take a look at the next slide here. And I love this slide. Uh, This is a far-side cartoon, they're just great. Uh, and in the cartoon, we got a troop of Jungle Explorers and the lead explorer has been strung up and skewered. And this guy here turns to this guy here and says, that's why I never walk in front. <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> I can assure you. Uh, now, everybody here in the sanctuary looks at this cartoon and you immediately recognize that this is designed. Not an accident, you know, this was done on purpose. How do you know that? Is it because of your religious beliefs? Yeah, probably not, (laughs) unless you're, you know, some strange, you know, anyway. No, you look at it and you see that a number of separate parts have been put together in such a configuration that they have a purpose, they have a function. And it turns out that we recognize design in the purposeful arrangement of parts. As a matter of fact, since we can't read minds, the only way that we can recognize the work of a mind is by examining effects on the physical environment, which our senses can detect. And the only way we, we do that is then when we see things that have been ordered to each other for some purpose, because only minds have purposes. So a purposeful arrangement of parts is the way, the only way, that we recognize the work of a mind. So what does this have to do with irreducible complexity? Well, irreducible complexity is a twofer. You get two for one. First of all, like I pointed out, it's an obstacle to Darwinian evolution because it cannot be put together by numerous successive slight modifications because you don't get the function of the system till it's pretty much all put together. And the second point is that it is evidence of purposeful design because in irreducibly complex systems, we have a purposeful arrangement of parts. We have parts put together to produce a function of the system. So that we can conclude just from looking at the machinery of life, in particular, the molecular machinery of life, because that's where the rubber meets the road in the physical basis of life. Darwin and folks of his era, and, and even people later on, get confused because they talk about you know, whole organs or organisms, and they say, wow, look, this changed, and this got bigger. this." got lighter in color and so on, wow, it evolved. But you have to look at the molecular level to say, okay, it evolved, but why did it evolve? What caused it to evolve? And that's the question that is now being, uh, being uh, addressed because of new techniques that have been just uh, developed over the past couple decades. As you know, science advances most rapidly with new technology that allows you to see or do things that were impossible to do before. Um, In the 1600s, you know, the microscope showed an unsuspected world of really complicated, tiny, microscopic beings, insects and, and bacteria and so on. Uh, and it shook people to no end because nobody had a clue that that existed. Uh, The invention of the telescope allowed astronomers to peer into the heavens and saw that you know this was much more complicated and majestic than uh, we previously realized. Well these days science has developed the ability to rapidly and cheaply sequence the DNA of organisms. And as you know, DNA uh, carries the information that allows the cell to build all of the proteins that it has, and these go about building the cell, and they're responsible for the molecular machinery of the flagellum and and every other molecular machine uh, in the cell. Problem is that uh, DNA, of course, is a sequence of things called nucleotides, you know, DNA letters, A, C, G, T, and like the alphabet, they can be strung together uh, in very long strings to make words and paragraphs and so on. Uh, So the arrangement of the letters is what uh, defines the uh, protein, the molecular machine (laughs) that it gives rise to. And Organisms like us, mammals, usually have about 3 billion nucleotides in our total DNA, and that's a lot. And if one of the letters changes, it can make a big difference at the macroscopic level. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, uh, what we see in other people. For example, just have to change one nucleotide and somebody gets sickle cell disease. And uh, so, but which one? You have to check three billion of them to see which one uh, gives rise to that. But it turns out, as I said earlier, now we can, through the ingenious works of many, many scientists, uh, the ability to take DNA from any organism and just scan through it uh, and analyze the three billion or what, however many the organism has, base pairs, um, cheaply is at hand. So that's what the book, uh, my new book, Darwin Devolves, uh, is about. And uh, it just came out recently, because like I said, this, this is actually hot off the hot off the press is news, the science is, is brand new. Well, in Darwin Devolves, I have made three key overarching points. Uh, I'm not sure how, how time constraints will uh, allow me how far to get, but uh, I'll get through as many as I can. The first and most important one I call the first rule of adaptive evolution. If you're some organism and your environment changes and things aren't good anymore, what is the best way that your DNA uh, can change or the first way it can change to allow you to adapt to a new environment? The second is called the principle of comparative difficulty. And that takes advantage of uh, the uh, idea that if some particular task is too difficult for Uh, some process to account for, then something that is a harder problem certainly can't be accounted for by that process either. If, you know, somebody tells you he is actually an Olympic high jumper, and yet as walks down the street, you see he has trouble lifting his leg over the curb, you have reason to doubt that Uh, what he claims of himself is true and the last, I'm sorry, the last uh, key point is something called the family line. Uh, That's a cute little uh, phrase that means that I think that the need for design in life goes past the origin of life, past the development of cells, past the development of eukaryotes, past the development of animals, and it goes all the way down to the family level, the family level of biological classification. And that's the third, uh, the third level of biological classification. The the, uh, lowest level is species, the next one is genus, and then the family level. And to give you an idea of that, the family level is like dogs versus cats. They're both mammalian carnivores, but they're different families. I think, then, that in order to get a cat versus a dog from some generic mammal, information had to be added, allowing that family to be produced. Okay, so let's talk about the first rule of adaptive evolution. As I said, I think this is the most important point of the book. And much of it has to do with the very elegant and really great work of this man, a man named Richard Lenski. Richard Lenski is a professor of microbiology at Michigan State University. And he pretty much uh, invented the field or certainly uh, invented the really serious field of laboratory evolution used to be thought that, well, nobody can study evolution because, hey, it takes, you know, at least thousands and thousands of generations. You need millions and millions of organisms. You know, what government agency is going to give you a grant to do that? You know, so better to, to find something else to do. But Lenski, being a microbiologist, said, hey, I know what I'll do. I'll take a liquid culture of a bacterium called E. coli, which is a common laboratory bacterium. As a matter of fact, I'll take 12 of them. I'll have 12 flasks just for replicability's sake. And uh, he'll put in some liquid nutrient um, material and some E. coli to start. And there was enough, uh, enough material for them to go through six or seven generations. And because they're so small, the bacteria reproduce rapidly, and so it turns out they could do that overnight. And it turns out that also because they're so small, there were about a hundred million of them in each 10 milliliter flask. And the next morning, Lenski or one of his colleagues or students would come in and take an aliquot of the previous night's culture and put it in some fresh media. And they would let it grow for another day, another six or seven generations and then they'd do the same thing the next day and the next day for 30 years. And it turns out that the bacteria have gone through more than 50,000 generations in that time and there have been trillions of organisms. And the most important point is that he just let them grow. He didn't try to push them this way or push them that way. He just wanted to see what they would do on their own. And he was amazed to see early on in the early 1990s that some of the bacteria would start to grow faster. And because they grew faster, they would outcompete the ancestor bacteria and take over the culture. They had evolved, they had improved, they were, they were doing better in that environment. But back in the 1990s, it was hard to say, well, okay, that's great. But what was that mutation that allowed them to grow faster? And the genome of E. coli is about 3 million base pairs, and even that is, was beyond the uh, uh, ability of that time to, to look into. And so Lensky did a number of other experiments that didn't uh, involve looking at the mutations. He saw the changes in the shape, the changes in their Uh, feeding preferences and so on. It was not until the early 2000's that he was able to track down at the molecular level uh, one very helpful mutation. And his lab saw that in fact, uh, what, 12 of the 12 cultures, 12 of the 12 replicate cultures had lost the ability to metabolize a sugar called ribose. Ribose, as I'm sure you know, uh, is a component of RNA and does other things in the cell. And all of them no longer could use that. So they couldn't, if he put ribose into the culture, they wouldn't eat it, essentially. And so he scratched and said, why is that? But the interesting thing is that that gave them a target out of the vast expanse of the E. coli genome of where to look for changes in the DNA. So they zeroed in on the area which was known to hold the genes for metabolizing ribose. And what they saw is that the activity of the ribose operon, and another one too, decreased and that that was beneficial, it was helpful that they decreased. And that indeed deletions of the ribose operon were helpful. If you threw away those previously existing genes in his laboratory environment, that allowed the bacteria to grow about 5% faster than the Ancestor. 5% doesn't sound like a lot, but after 20 generations, it takes over the population. So, this is a big deal evolutionarily wise. But nonetheless, let me stress that um, the loss of an ability helped the bacterium. It was beneficial to lose genetic information. Later on, a few years later, they looked at other genes that they had an inkling might be involved in helping the bacteria grow faster. And they all seemed also to be broken or greatly degraded. These bars here and the names in the center represent genes in in the E. coli genome four different genes here, and these little arrows show where in the gene that different of the 12 replicate cultures, different uh, cultures had mutations in the same gene but at different places, and that helped. Now why would that be? Well it turns out that if a mutation is going to break a gene, why you can break it here and you can break it there and you can break it anywhere. Um, as Dr. Seuss might say Uh, um, and uh, so this is the signature of a mutation which is helping by decreasing or destroying the activity of the gene and this was the case for all four of the genes that he was uh, looked at in the early 2000s about 2005 or six or so. And I looked at that work, and I decided to write uh, a review of experimental laboratory evolution. Uh, And it was published in a journal called Quarterly Review of Biology. And the uh, title of it, Experimental Evolution, Loss of Function Mutations, and what I called the first rule of adaptive evolution, which was one of the three big points of the book. And the first rule of adaptive evolution that I came up with in the review is this. Break or blunt any functional coded element, which is another word for gene or control region, whose loss would yield a net fitness gain. This is a technical term Uh, uh, biologists call success in reproducing fitness. So essentially it would yield more offspring. So if you break a gene, it would yield more offspring. That's the first rule of adaptive evolution in the sense is a rule, in the sense of a rule of thumb. This is not a hard and fast rule, but it's the most likely thing that would happen. And it's the first rule because you would expect it to happen first, faster than any constructive. Uh, mutations that might come along. Well, why would you expect it to occur faster than constructive mutations? Well, because like uh, I alluded to before, if you wanted to break a gene, you could pretty much break it in hundreds of different positions. Just like you could, you know, take off the cover of a computer and you could hit your hammer here or you could hit your hammer there or there and you'd have a great chance of breaking it. So, but if you wanted to improve a gene, do something constructive, you would likely have to change very specific places in the gene. Just like with your computer, you would have to make real specific changes if you wanted it to go faster or, or some such thing. So it's just statistically more likely to break a gene than to uh, change a particular amino acid and therefore it's faster. Why does that matter? Well, natural selection is there. It's, it's operating all the time and if by breaking a gene um, the species improves its survival in a particular environment then that will sweep to fixation in the population within uh, a relatively few number of generations, all of the members of the species will have a broken gene where there used to be a functional gene. And for all practical purposes, that is gone forever. It no longer has that. It has less functional genetic information than it had before. So it's not just that it's good to break genes sometimes, but the uh, natural selection freezes that broken gene into the population. So people say, how can it help to break something? You know, why break something? How can that help? Well, here's a little analogy. Suppose you had this spiffy car here, hey, this is great, you know. But uh, your life, for some reason, some circumstances came around, and your life depended upon your car getting better gas mileage what could you do to quickly change the amount of gas mileage that it got? Well, you could throw off the doors, or you could throw out the spare tire, tire, or take the hood off, and decrease the weight of the car. And while this might, you know, doors and hoods and so on are useful in many situations, but if your life depended on the gas mileage, that was the greatest factor in whether you survived or not, then it is advantageous to toss all those things away. Same thing with the cell. If something is useful in some circumstances, but you're not in those circumstances, and it's advantageous to toss that in those circumstances, then that will spread throughout the population. Okay, it was in the mid mid teens, 2015 or so, that Richard Lensky's lab, after the flowering of DNA sequencing technology, was able to go back and sequence the entire genomes of every stage of all 12 replicas of his bacterial culture. The nice thing about working with bacteria is that he could take some every, say, 100 generations or so, take an aliquot, put it in a little plastic test tube, add a little bit of glycerol to, as antifreeze, and put it in a minus 60 degree freezer where it would just be in suspended animation, you know, it wouldn't change at all. And then, later on, maybe a decade later, maybe 20 years later, he'd say, oh, gee, I wonder what happened uh, in that old Uh, in in generation number, you know, 11,000. You know, did that gene have this mutation then? He could go back, get out the frozen culture, and regrow it. It had been suspended then, and so he could see what, uh, what was going on back then. Well, in 2015, he and his team sequenced a total of 264 E. coli genomes representing every replica, every few hundred generations uh, for 50,000 generations. And in it, uh, in the paper that he published, there were two tables published. Here's table one, and this is all the, the, uh, the 17 highest uh, mutations that helped uh, helped uh, the bacteria grow the best uh, in his culture. So these are the best mutations. And uh, just like those genes I, we looked at a few slides ago, if there are multiple mutations, multiple different mutations in the genes, that is a signature of their working by degrading or destroying the gene. All of the ones that had point mutations, that is just one nucleotide or in uh, the gene was changed, all of them had multiple mutations at different places. In other words, all of them very likely worked by degrading or destroying the activity of the gene. He also looked at another 17 or so of the top selected mutations that like the uh, like the mutation that uh, was first detected in the ribose operon, uh, deleted or otherwise made large changes in the E. coli genome. And there are almost certainly all destructive mutations, and yet they're beneficial. They uh, They help the organism grow faster. So here is the startling thing that we have learned due to the advance of technology in just the past 10-ish or so years. We already knew from from about 1950 or so that of those mutations that affect an organism, about 99% are detrimental. That is, they make the organism sick. They make it less successful. The astonishing thing that is, of even beneficial mutations, the great majority break genes or degrade function. They break things, but they don't make the organism sick, they make it grow faster. And that's good, but uh, again, the broken gene spreads in the, in the, um, in the population, and that, that loss of information is frozen uh, in time. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, I'm sure it was profound. But not <laughs> <laughs> okay. And here's another important point, and that is that this principle, the first rule of evolution, is as relentless as the tide tide's coming in, here's a poor bird here, tide's coming in, so you run down, you don't want the tide to come in, so you run down, you take a bucket, and you get some water, and you throw it out, and then you go back. Well, the tide doesn't care. You know, you might toss some water back, but nobody, but the tide isn't going to care. And that's actually an important point to keep in mind, because some mutations, don't act, some beneficial mutations don't act by degrading or destroying genes. Sometimes they duplicate genes or rearrange them or something. And that actually happened in one of Richard Lensky's uh, results in his lab. We don't have time to go into it, but it turns out that there's uh, E. coli cannot eat a chemical called citrate, which is found in citrus fruit and stuff, It's a very common chemical Uh, in the presence of oxygen, which he grew his bugs uh, in oxygen. But they can eat it if oxygen is not present. So one morning, uh, the workers in the lab came in. They saw that one flask was cloudier than other flasks. And that was because more bugs had grown in that flask. And when they looked, they found that, in fact, there was a mutation around the genes that allow that metabolize citrate and that a control region, which usually works at a different gene and which allows the gene to be expressed, turned on in the presence of oxygen, had been copied over next to the citrate gene and so it was turned on. And since, for technical purposes, there was a lot of citrate in Lensky's cultures, it just loved it. It went crazy, it outgrew its brothers and sisters within a generation or two. And this was touted very very widely. Richard Lensky's work uh, gets noticed by uh, the uh, popular media, New York Times, Washington Post, and so on, as well as Uh, the scientific media. Well, okay, the first rule of adaptive evolution, as I said, is a rule of thumb. But as when the genes rearranged and the bacteria now could eat citrate, well, that was a new environment for the bacteria. So, the bacteria can adapt better now to this newer environment where it can eat citrate and some of Lensky's students, this guy, Quant, uh, was a student of Lensky's, they decided to look and see what other mutations arose because of the change in the ability to eat citrate. And they saw that losing this particular gene was beneficial. Okay, so in the changed circumstance where it can now eat citrate, Losing isocitrate lyase was beneficial. They looked uh, further and they said that loss of uh, these two genes uh, are also helpful for growth in the presence of an ability to eat citrate in the presence of oxygen. So the point is, well, yeah, every now and again you get a, you know, a, a gene that is not destructive maybe even constructive, but the trend is relentless. It, you know, the next gene to come along, the first rule holds for that. The fastest and easiest way is to break a gene to accommodate the other change and then to break a gene to accommodate that. <laughs> so, um, the uh, take-home point is that now we know What nobody else could know. Darwin didn't know about molecules or cells. Uh, Scientists uh, after him could not determine what the mutations were that were powering evolution. But now we can see that Darwin's mechanism is dominated by what I call poison pill mutations. That is, they are positively selected, helpful, but they are loss of function and that Darwin's mechanism works chiefly by squandering genetic information for short-term gain. And I'm out of time, but I just want to... Yeah, Walter Bradley has nothing on me, so I'm going to take another 60 seconds or so and say, oh, you know, biochemists love bacteria uh, because they are bags of molecules and we, we study molecules. But it also, the same thing applies to more common organisms that are found in our everyday world. For example, you know, puppy dogs. Dogs have long been pointed to as examples of the great power of selection. Look at all these breeds that humans have been able to foster in only the past few hundred years or so. Uh, there's There are breeds with, you know, long curly hair and short legs and uh, short muzzles and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but because of the great ability to sequence DNA these days, scientists, some of them, were interested in studying these different breeds to see what the mutations were that caused uh, these uh, beneficial traits. Beneficial in the sense that they got taken into homes, they got raised and so on. And the long and short of it is they're pretty much all loss of function genes. Okay, I don't have time to go into it, but they are. And polar bears. Believe it or not, the entire polar bear genome has been sequenced. I would hate to be the guy that had to get the blood sample. and it was compared to the genome of the grizzly bear. Now, it's, it's a thought that the polar bear descended from the grizzly bear, and scientists wanted to see what the changes were, what the mutations were that allowed that to happen. And uh, here's a paper that reported that, and the point is uh, that the top 17 mutations, the most strongly selected mutations, uh, were predicted to be functionally damaging. It says large proportion, it says 50%, but that actually underweighs the uh, damage of it because several of the genes had multiple mutations and there were some that uh, more, there were more, there were, about 75% of the mutated genes had at least one damaging mutation. One of which that was highly selected was one that destroyed the ability of the organism to produce a brown pigment and so its coat color was white. Another one destroyed its ability to transport cholesterol so the cholesterol in its bloodstream was lower than it would otherwise be from the polar bear's high fat diet. It eats a lot of seals, seals have a lot of blubber and so on. So again the point is that Whether you're talking about bacteria, or talking about mammals, birds, Darwin's finches are the same. I have a chapter in my book about that. Anywhere, from eukaryotes to humans to prokaryotes, uh, this rule, the first rule of adaptive evolution, must hold. It must hold. Thanks very much for your attention.